Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be with you, and uh, I'm excited about opening the Word of God with you this morning. But um, I'd like you to do me a little favor, and that is, um, I'd like you to join me as we ask God once again, you can never pray too much, um, ask God once again to, to just give us a spirit that we might, as, as the Scripture says, that he might enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we might see the glory of our King. Um, and so pray with me, please. God of heaven, we are broken and distracted people. And we need to see you. We need to see your glory. We need your majesty and your power. That vision of who you are to set us free from all that holds us back. That we might live in the joy and the power that you've intended us to live in. That we might find the freedom and the love that you have for us in Jesus. So God, we ask this morning, in the name of our Savior, that you would please pour out your Spirit. Open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see the hope to which we have been called, and the greatness of our Savior and King. Please, Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning we're finishing our devoted series, where we're coming to the end of Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the last two verses and to just give us a little context, I'd like to start reading at verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. If you have your scriptures with you, I invite you to take them out and follow along. Acts chapter 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is a pretty remarkable community. I mean, they shared a singular passion together a singular vision and hope in Jesus together. They didn't just share a common passion, though, a common hope. They shared all their stuff together. No one considered anything their own. And not only did they share all their stuff together, but it appears they shared all their time together. I mean, this is a, this is a remarkable community, and honestly, it's a little bit expensive for my taste. If, if you know my wife, you know that she has just a heart for those who are experiencing poverty and homelessness. And so Karen and I have this agreement about money. I work hard to make money, and she works hard to give it away. And it's, it's really a pretty good partnership. And, and for the most part, there is this joy in being able to give. But let me be honest with you. There is a certain threshold where my joy starts to taper off and pain starts to come up. I mean, there is, when, I'm like, oh, that's cutting in a little close to the bone. You know, that, when my future starts to be threatened, when our financial security starts to feel like it's being impinged on, it's painful. I'm happy to give. I give joyfully but to a point. All the believers were one in heart and mind, Acts 4.32. 
No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. I don't know. Not sure I'm happy about that. And, okay, so there's, I like my private property, okay? I like to have stuff that's mine. And, and what about time? I mean, every day, they're meeting in their houses, they're like, listen, I like you guys, and I, I would really like to spend time with you, but I don't want to spend all my time with you. I love my space. Karen and I, we, we have two grandkids. We love to death, okay? They come over. We delight in having them over. And when they leave, there's this ritual we do. We drop our exhausted bodies on the couch. We turn to each other and we say, it's just us. <laughs> all their stuff, all their time. I'm not sure I want this. And yet here it is. The Spirit of God falls on these people, and this is the community it produces. They are free. It says they are glad and sincere hearts. They're not doing this because their pastor said, you need to go to small groups. They're doing this out of gladness, out of sincerity. This is their pleasure to do it. This is their joy. They have been set free from the fetters of this world. They're like, you need my stuff? Take it, man. I don't consider it my own. Where did this freedom come from? No amount of sermons are going to get us to this point. So in the ancient Near East, in the first century Jerusalem, it was, the culture was what sociologists call a collectivist culture. Okay? They valued community over individual. And it was expected for the individuals to sacrifice their personal rights for the sake of community. And even in that culture, this was radical. We live in one of the most individualistic cultures in the history of the world. If it was radical in that culture, it's nigh unto impossible in this culture. It reminds me of the story of this guy from Boston, and he's out driving through northern Maine. He's in rural Maine, and this is before Google Maps and navigation stuff, and as, as, he, as the New Englanders say, he gets himself wicked lost. <laughs> right? And he's, he's, got, he's got no idea where he's at. And he sees this old Maine farmer. And so he pulls over and, he, and, he, and he, he says to the farmer, Sir, sir, I'm looking for such and such a place. Do you know where it is? The farmer looks at him and goes, Yeah. <laughs> well, well, can you tell me how to get there? And then the farmer looks at him and says, You can't get there from here. You can't get there from here. I look at where the church is at in the New Testament, and I look at where we're at, and I'm going, you can't get there from here. It just don't work. And yet, and yet, the Spirit works, and this is the community that's produced. So what I want us to look at today is, how is it that this kind of community came about? What is it that gave them that kind of freedom and that kind of liberty to live and to love in that way? to be a physical manifestation of the coming kingdom of God, what was it that set them free like that? Before we look at that, though, let me just, let's just take a brief look at what's happening here. We'll look at what's happening and then why it's happening. Okay, Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, 
Every day, they continued to meet in the temple courts. You see, the Jews of that time, the devout Jews of that time, they had a tradition of praying three times a day. And for the afternoon prayer, they would typically go to the temple to pray. And so these early disciples, these early believers, they continued to go to the temple. They continued to do their ritual routine of praying at the temple. But it was now loaded with so much more meaning and so much more joy. They were not doing it out of, out of some ritualistic duty. They were doing it out of sheer delight and the opportunity to praise God together and to remind each other of the beauty of their hope together in the temple courts. And what about meeting home to home and breaking of bread? Again, in the ancient Near East, if you were to go over to someone's house, there was this tradition where the host would take a piece of bread and he would look to heaven and he would give thanks for it. And then the host would break off a piece of bread and he would hand a piece, one at a time, to each individual at the table. As if to say by his gesture, you are seen, you are welcomed, and you are loved at my table. Now Jesus takes that tradition, and he takes the bread, and he breaks the bread, and he goes around and he gives a piece to every one of the disciples. And he says, because of my broken body, you are seen, you are loved, and you are welcomed at the table. You are seen, you are loved, and you are welcomed by God because my body has been broken for you. They take the existing traditions, and there is life loaded onto it. They're doing the same old things, but in a brand new way. And they are doing it with sincerity and gladness of heart. They're giving not because they have to, but because they want to. There is no virtue signaling happening here. No one's trying, doing it to try and look it up. Later in Acts chapter 5, there's this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, and they do it in an effort, they give in an effort to look good, and unfortunately for them, they end up looking very dead at the end. But what's happening here is genuine. There is this gladness, this freedom of, of giving of their time and their resources that happens. It really is a remarkable community. What was it that caused this community to happen? Why did this kind of community come about? Well, you know it's the result of, of the teachings and the life of a young rabbi named Jesus. And what was it, though, that this rabbi taught that, that produced this kind of community? Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. You know, sometimes when we go to the beach, I, I, I like to watch the surfers see the good news and repent. See, the word repentance means to turn your life, to turn your thoughts to turn the direction of your thoughts, to turn the direction of your life. And so these surfers are out there. They've got their boards pointed out into the deep waters, right? And then they see the good news. They see this swell coming. And what do they do? They turn the direction of their boards. They turn, and not only that, but they exert energy to move in the direction that the wave is coming. They turn in the direction of the wave, and they move in the direction of the wave. And then what happens? That wave comes, and by the power of the wave, they are lifted up. And they have this great ride coming in. 
It is the power of the wave that lifts them. It is the power of the wave that moves them. But if they had not turned and paddled in the direction the wave was coming, they would not have been lifted up by the wave. They would have been crushed by it. That's the kingdom of God. The good news is there's a swell on the horizon. The king is coming. Turn your boards, man, and paddle. Paddle in the direction the kingdom is headed. Love and live like the king loves and lives. And when the kingdom comes, it'll be a gnarly ride. <laughs> the thing I want you to see, though, is that not only does Jesus say the kingdom is coming, that Jesus tells us how the kingdom is going to come. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus says, here's how the kingdom of God is going to come. I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring it in in its fullness and its power. He calls himself the Son of Man. Now, that doesn't mean much to us. But to the first century Jew, that would have meant an awful lot. Let me read to you from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The son of man that Daniel sees is this sovereign king who comes on the glory clouds of heaven to establish the eternal kingdom of God. When Jesus calls himself repeatedly the son of man, he is saying, that's me. That's me. I am not merely some meek and lowly rabbi. I am the sovereign king of God's kingdom. And one day I will return on the clouds of heaven. I will be sitting at the right hand of God, return on the clouds of heaven to judge the living and the dead. I am the coming king. I am that son of man. Jesus says, I will reward each person according to what he has done. And what does his reward look like? Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Jesus refers to the coming of his kingdom as the renewal of all things. Everything that is wrong will be made right. Every wound will be healed and made whole. He will renew all things. He will restore all things. And it says those who have sacrificed for his kingdom, he will reward a hundredfold. Now just imagine with me for a minute. That, that we found this money market account, okay, this, this money market fund that guaranteed 100x return on your money, okay, 10,000% return on your money, guaranteed, 
Now, if you believed that that was really true, what would you do? I would sell my house. I would sell my cars. I would sell my kids. No, I wouldn't sell my kids. I would sell my socks. I would, I would sell everything I had so I could get money and invest a hundredfold return. Are you kidding me? Jesus says the kingdom comes with a hundredfold return. The king is a generous, abundant king who will not fail to abundantly reward those who has, have lived for him and for his glory. Jesus says in Revelation, I am coming soon and my reward is with me. You know, our culture thinks of Jesus as this humble teacher. And I think while he was indeed that, I think sometimes we we fail to see the majesty of who Jesus really is. At his trial before the high priest, listen to what Jesus says. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus says, yes, it is as you say, but I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and says, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, you have heard the blasphemy. Jesus says, I am the sovereign God. And I am coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest is... I mean, this is blasphemy. Jesus dies, because is put to death because of blasphemy, because he claims to be the Son of God. Sit, the one who sits at the right hand of God and will one day return to establish in its fullness the kingdom of God. His claim is unambiguous, and he is put to death because he claims to be the sovereign king. Three days later, though, he's raised from the dead, and he returns to his disciples, and guess what he talks to his disciples about? Acts chapter 1, verse 3. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Let me back up a second because I kind of blew past that. On one occasion while he was eating with them, um, take three. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. There it is. He spoke to them about his favorite subject, the kingdom of God. And then he says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for, wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When Jesus appears to them, he talks once again to them about his kingdom, about his soon coming kingdom. And of course, he's, he's talking about this coming kingdom so much that the disciples naturally say, okay, all this talk about the kingdom, when's it coming? And Jesus says, sorry guys, can't tell you. But here's what I can tell you. I want you to wait in Jerusalem because you are going to receive a gift from my Father. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit himself, God himself is going to come on you and empower you to be my heralds, the heralds, the front runners of the kingdom. 
that you might demonstrate the kingdom of God to the world, that you might declare the kingdom of God to the world in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, he said, why do you stand looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. How was it that Jesus went into heaven? He ascended into heaven in the clouds. The angels say, that's how he's coming back. He's coming back on the clouds of heaven, the triumphant king to establish the kingdom of God. This was the theme. This was the good news of Jesus Christ was, boys, hang on, because I'm coming back. And it's going to be glorious. And so the disciples are faithful, and they stay in Jerusalem, and they wait. But they don't wait passively. It says they were constantly together in prayer. They're pleading with God, God, we want this Holy Spirit. Give us the Spirit. And then, you know the story, in 10 days after the ascension, they're in this upper room, probably about 120 of them praying, and this sound of this mighty rushing wind just rips through the building. And the Spirit of God falls on them, and they begin to declare, the Scripture says, the mighty deeds of God. They begin to declare these things back toward God. They, they, they sh they're shouting the praises of God, except they're shouting the praises of God in languages they didn't know. Now, these, these disciples were predominantly all Galileans. They didn't know those, the foreign languages of the nation. And it's just them when they start shouting these praises to God. So none of them understood what they were saying. No one understood who, what the person next to them was saying. So who were they speaking to? If you look through the scripture, predominantly, if not exclusively, tongues is an upward thing. They are declaring the praises of God to God. They're declaring his mighty deeds. And then the, the, these it's Pentecost, so there's this group of international Jews that are there in Jerusalem for the feast. They hear all this. They come and they hear them declaring the mighty deeds of God in their own language. And then Peter stands up and preaches to them. They get the opportunity to overhear these disciples praising God, much like we get the opportunity to overhear the psalmist as he praises God. They are declaring the mighty deeds of God. Now, when the Holy Spirit falls, I mean, the Holy Spirit's power could have been manifested in all sorts of ways. Why is it that when the Holy Spirit falls, that the way the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit is manifest is by this ecstatic upward worship and praise of God? These disciples declaring the mighty deeds of God. Well, I don't think it's a reach to say, if they were declaring the mighty deeds of God, if they just exploded with praise over his mighty deeds, then perhaps what happened was when the Spirit of God fell on them, the Spirit opened their eyes to the greatness of God. And that's, this is their response, is to explode with praise back to him because the Spirit has enlightened the eyes of their heart to see the glory of their King. Listen to what Paul says. In Ephesians, if I can find it. Um, Paul says this, Ephesians chapter 1, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. 
I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Paul says, I'm praying that the Spirit might open the eyes of your heart, that you might see the riches of the kingdom of God that God has reserved for you, your inheritance, that you might see the glory of your king who rules now in this age and in the age to come. The reason these people explode with praise is because the Spirit of God has opened their eyes to the coming wave of the kingdom of God. They have seen at some level the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God and soon to come in glory, and they are set free to praise. And it is that future hope, that future hope in the coming kingdom of God that sets them free to be generous with all they have. Their hope is no longer in the stuff of this world. It is in the coming kingdom of God. And the irony is, is that when their hope is in the kingdom of God in the future, the coming kingdom of God, they have the power to live out the kingdom of God here and now. It is our future hope that gives us present power. It is, a, it is, the, it is the spirit opening our eyes to the greatness of our soon coming king that sets us free to live for him here and now. And without that spirit wrought hope, we have no power. We are fettered to the things of this world. This is, from the start of the Bible to the end of the Bible, this is the message. There is present power in the future hope of the coming king. Scholars, most scholars agree that the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. It was the very first book written in our Bible. You know the story of Job. Job is a righteous man, a blameless man, the scripture calls him. And one day... The angels are coming before God to give an accounting. And God says to Satan, Satan, have you checked out Job, man? He really loves me. And Job says, yeah, he does. Because you give him good stuff. And God says, no. He says, Satan says, you take away his stuff, and I bet he will curse you to your face. And God says, okay, you're on. And so Satan brings about this series of calamities in Job's life where he loses all his possessions. Not only that, but tragedy on tragedy. There is this terrible accident in the house where all his children are collapsed and his beloved children are killed. All his possessions, his children, those he loves, they're dead. And Job falls on his face before God. And he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan comes before God once again, and God says, I told you so. Satan looks at God and says, skin for skin. Skin for skin. Let me hurt the boy, and he'll curse you to your face. God says, no. No, he won't. Satan says, bet he will. Okay, you're on. And so Satan brings on Job this unbelievably painful disease where his entire body breaks out in these festering pustules of, of sores and bleeding wounds. Every nerve in his body is on fire and he sits in ashes and he takes broken pottery and scrapes the pus from his bleeding wounds. And his wife comes to him and says, Job, will you just curse God and die? 
And Job says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Wow. Where did that kind of power to live for the glory of God come from? It is no mystery because Job himself tells us. He says in Job chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand upon this earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. It was his yearning for the coming of his king, his sure hope that his redeemer would come and make all things right. It was that hope that gave him the power to live for the glory of God in the present here and now. And what about Moses? What was it that empowered him to say no to all the treasures and pleasures of Egypt and live for the glory of God? By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Why? because he was looking ahead to his reward. He said no to all the enticements of the world because his heart was anchored in the coming kingdom of his Christ. And what about Stephen, the first martyr? You remember the story of Stephen? Stephen, in boldness, puts himself in grave danger, puts his life in danger to speak of the glory of his king. The speech that gets Stephen in trouble starts with him recounting this lengthy recounting of the history of Israel. And that it ends with him telling the Jewish leaders, you murdered God's Messiah. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit... Look what happens to Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What does the Spirit of God do for him? It gives him, the Spirit of God opens his eyes to see the beauty and the power and the glory of his king, sets his heart free from the things of this world so that his last dying breath is spent praying for his murderers. One of those men Stephen prayed for, we know, is the Apostle Paul. He is set free to die for his king because the Spirit of God has opened his eyes to see the glory and the hope and the promise of the coming kingdom. It is his future hope that gives him present power, a spirit-wrought future hope in the coming kingdom of God that enables him to live out that kingdom, the love and the grace and the power of that kingdom here and now. And what about the early believers? The early church, when they faced persecution. Hebrews 10, 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. 
when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. These believers joyfully accepted the confiscation of, your, of their property. What do you think the response of the church in America would be if the government decided to confiscate our property because we were believers? Oh my. And joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Why? Why did they joyfully accept it? Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. They were free to part with their goods because their heart was not tethered to them. Their heart was tethered to the kingdom of God and the reward of our Lord and of his Christ. And they were free. Free to live and to love in a way that brought glory to God because the Spirit of God had opened their eyes to their future hope. And that future hope brought present power. It set them free. And how does the scripture end? In the very last chapter of the very last book of the Bible, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me. And the spirit and the bride cry out from the depths of their heart in the longing of Job, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And Jesus says, Yes, I am coming soon. And the spirit and the bride reply, Amen. Come Lord Jesus. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, there is a yearning, there is a longing for the king to return and restore all things. And it is not some pie in the sky longing, is it a longing that empowers them to live here and now for the glory of God. How could these believers just give their stuff away, give their time away? It was because their hearts were no longer tethered to the kingdom of this world. It was tethered to the coming kingdom of God and they were free to live for their king. The Spirit of God had opened their eyes to the wave on the horizon. And they turned and paddled because they saw it coming. And there was freedom, and there was joy, and there was power. You know, the irony is, is that if we look to this, life, this world to give us life, we will take life from the world. But if we look to the bountiful, abundant kingdom of God for life, we will have a surplus to give life to the world. It says, God added to their number daily those who were being saved. I just imagine the conversation between an early believer and, and, and their neighbor. You know, they, they go to their neighbor and they say, hey, you know, hey, I was wondering... You know, I'd really like to share with you the hope and the freedom that I've, that I've found in, in Jesus. And, and I'd really like to tell you about the joy that's mine. And their neighbor looks at them and says, you already have. You already have. I've seen the joy and the generosity and the freedom that you have. I've seen the way you love. I've seen the way you sacrifice, not out of duty, but out of joy. And I want that. Can you tell me more? And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Stay out of my yard, don't touch my stuff, and Jesus loves you. Doesn't work so well. 
there was a freedom to live and to love, to care for the needy and the poor with this abundant generosity. The, the, the church in the United States is ill. It has contracted a deadly virus known as, as the affluenza virus. We have become so affluent and so comfortable that we have begun to mistake this world as our home. And we've started to protect our goods here because this is our home. And it has crippled our faith. It has crippled our power. It has crippled our testimony. Our hope is in the coming kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And it is that sure hope that sets us free. So what are we to do? What are we to do? We're to follow the ways of the early church. How was it, not, not, not simply their practices, but how they got there from here. How did they get there from here? Together, they constantly prayed that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that God would open their eyes to the glory of King Jesus. Listen, no amount of sermons, no amount of small groups is ever going to work this kind of change in us. What's going to work this kind of change in us as a community of believers is if the spirit of God falls on us, opens our eyes to the glory of our King, and sets us free. We need to unite together, pleading with God. God, Jesus says, don't do anything until the Spirit comes. Wow. If we, the call on our hearts today, the call to us today, I believe is that, that we unite together, pleading with God for a fresh outpouring of Spirit, that we might see the mighty deeds of God, and so be a people who declare them in word and in deed. To be together praying, asking for the Holy Spirit. But the church of Jesus Christ did not, not simply pray together, but they met together and spoke to each other. Hebrews 10 says this, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. And then he adds this, And all the more as you see the day approaching. If it was important then, it's all the more important now. I like small talk, okay? There's a place for small talk. But we need to be encouraging each other in our most holy faith. My faith is weak and my doubts are strong. You pull a stick from the fire, it will go out. I need you to speak words of spiritual encouragement to me. I need you to remind me of the hope that is ours in Jesus. I need you to share with me the testimony of how God ministered to your soul, how you trusted him and found him faithful. Tell me. I need that. We need to be speaking, spurring each other on toward love and good deeds, reminding each other that we don't live for the kingdom of this world, but for the coming kingdom of our Lord. We need to be a people who spur one another on. Paddle hard, brother. Paddle hard. The wave's coming. And finally, this is not from our passage, but from the passages that follow. 
We need to be a people who learn how to, how to suffer well together. Our culture has a dysfunctional relationship with pain and with sorrow and with hunger. Our culture tells us that those things are not good. You need to do whatever it takes to medicate them and get them out of your life. And if you can't somehow get them out of your life, well then, live in this stoic kind of denial. It is what it is. It is what it is. If you can't eradicate pain, if you can't medicate it out of your life, sorry you can't medicate it out, then, well, it is what it is. My son-in-law, his brother, just committed suicide. It is what it is. No, it hurts like hell. It hurts like hell. But somehow, feel that sorrow, feel that pain, feel it deeply, and let that remind you, we are not home. Let it deepen your hope and your longing. One day, Jesus will come, and I don't know how, but he will make all that is broken right. I struggle with incessant hunger. I can feel it in my chest often. And Satan says, hey man, medicate that. Medicate it, with, medicate it with, with food or with booze or with porn or with fun or with toys and stuff. Medicate it. You got to dull that stuff. And Jesus says, no, sit in it. Feel the hunger. Explore its contours and let it remind you that there is a banquet waiting for you that is worth the wait. When you sit down at the banquet of the Lamb, there is a feast that will one day set. And if we let our sorrows, if we let our pain, if we let our hungers drive us to hope more deeply, things will change. The hunger may not go away. The sorrow may not go away. The pain may not go away. But the hold on your heart that it once had will. Because your hope will no longer be in the comforts of this world, but in the coming kingdom of God. And you can find joy in the midst of sorrow and in the midst of pain because nothing can stop the return of the king. It is this hope that gives us the present power to live for the glory of God. Sorry. Completely lost. Let me close this out with these words from the word of God. Hear the word of God to your hearts. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised for in just a very little while. He who is coming will come and will not delay. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. And the church said, Amen. Amen.